What's up, Videolanders? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on AdventuresInVideoLand.com or on our Facebook at AdventuresInVideoLand. Friday the 13th has an interesting history. Jason Voorhees was in 3D, he became a zombie, he took a boat to New York, and he even went to space. But there's a certain Jason movie that became one of the most divisive sequels in horror history. Tonight, I talked with Adam Marcus. In 1993, Adam wrote and directed Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. He was only 23 at the time and the youngest director ever hired by New Line Cinema. Love it or hate it, overseeing the final chapter of one of the most famous horror franchises of all time is a big deal. After talking with Adam, it's easy to see why Jason Goes to Hell has a cult following. I watched it this week for the first time in 15 years, and Jason Goes to Hell is a lot better than I remembered. The opening scene is awesome, Creighton Duke is one of the best characters in the franchise, the practical effects hold up, and I love the ending. It's one of the best endings in the genre. It doesn't get any more epic than Freddy's glove grabbing Jason's mask. Is it my favorite? Hell no. Could it have been? Hell yes. Tonight, Adam Marcus takes us behind the scenes and shows us what his ultimate Jason movie would have looked like without studio interference. We talk about Jason being a deadite, Jason's evil brother, the return of Tommy Jarvis, a Predator-slash-Jaws-inspired sequel with Creighton Duke leading a manhunt through Crystal Lake. I fucking want that version of Part 9. Anyway, I had a great time with this interview. I hope you enjoy this honest conversation about one of the most controversial films in the genre. Please welcome Adam Marcus. Welcome to Videoland, Adam. Hey, good to be here, brother. So, Adam, you directed the final chapter of one of the most famous horror franchises of all time. How did you get involved with Jason Goes to Hell?, and uh, tell us about your relationship with Friday the 13th co-creator, Sean Cunningham. Uh, I was around the Cunningham family my, my whole life. Um, they were, you know, Sean was in some ways sort of a cinematic dad to me. And uh, so I was always with them, and uh, I, I, I did a lot of assisting, in, uh, you know, in their offices. I worked um, in, uh, in the editing department with his wife, Susan, who's amazing, um, brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, and, uh, you know, knew Wes Craven and Steve Miner and all of these, this kind of, this cast of, of horror legends that was always around Sean, uh, Tom Savini, you know, the whole, the whole bunch. And, uh, that's how I kind of grew up. So, you know, when I, when I was a teenager, um, I was, uh, heavily in the theater because my whole family are, you know, most of my family are actors or performers of some sort. Uh, in fact, my uncle Joe uh, Joe Ellison, he uh, wrote and directed Don't Go in the House back in the early 80s. Um, so, you know, my, my family is steeped in this stuff. Uh, my uncle Ned Eisenberg, who's an actor, he was one of the leads of the movie The Burning. Um, and so, uh, so I had all this around me. Well, I started a couple theater companies, and Sean Cunningham was actually instrumental in um, helping me to finance my first theater company in, in Connecticut. And uh, it was kind of incredible, man. We, uh, I, I, I had, a, I had two companies that actually made money, and it nice. helped me to get through uh, film school at NYU um, when when I was uh, in college. And I won Best Picture at NYU, and Sean saw the movie and he loved it, and he said, "Look, come to Los Angeles and uh, quote unquote be my bitch for a year, <laughs> and I'll give you your shot to, I'll give you your shot to direct." And so I came out to L.A. I had uh, 300 bucks in my pocket and no driver's license because I was living in New York. Um, you, didn't need a, you didn't need to drive anywhere. So 
and so I moved back here. I bought a car that I couldn't drive, but that I could live in. <laughs> and uh, I lived in the car for a little while. And then um, uh, I started pitching a movie around town that my best friend in college had written for me to direct. And it was something we had workshop for years called Johnny Zombie. And I found somebody who wanted to, who wanted to finance the film, but I knew that I really wanted Sean to finance it. So I worked it out that Sean would be a little bit sort of jealous that somebody else was interested. Sean read the script, hated the script, but loved the idea. And, uh, and so we started putting together this other movie, Johnny Zombie. And that film ended up getting picked up by Disney. It ended up being called My Boyfriend's Back. Nice. It was the first film that I was an associate producer on. Uh, so by the time I was 21, I had set up my first studio movie. And so uh, I set this thing up, but it was going to be a much bigger budgeted thing. And Disney was going to turn it into this sort of family-friendly movie, which was, you know, it had started out as this very kind of hardcore R-rated horror comedy musical. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, I know. And it was like the movie of my dreams, and Disney was not going to make that movie. They were going to make a much more sort of neutered version of that film, which is fine, and I get it, it's Disney. Uh, so I turned to Sean and I said, hey, I set up a movie for you. It's going to make everybody a lot of money. That's great. <laughs> but I, you know, I came out here to direct. I came out here to make a film. And he said, uh, well, New Line is buying the rights to Friday 13th from Paramount. And it, and this was his quote: "If you can get that fucking hockey mask out of the movie, I'll let you write and direct it." <laughs> and I said, "Okie doke." And three days later, I brought him a treatment for what would end up being uh, being you know Jason goes tell. It was originally called uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Nine: The Heart of Darkness. Um, and the reason for that, which is an incredibly pretentious thing, but again, I was a twenty-two-year-old you know NYU film grad. Um, the reason I called it The Heart of Darkness was that when Orson Welles was 23, um, he wanted to, he was making um, uh, the first adaptation of Joseph Campbell's book, The Heart of Darkness, which ended up be, being uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And so uh, I fancied myself a huge Welles fan. I'm a lunatic about Orson Welles. And so, um, so I wanted my first film to be named the same thing that Orson Welles' first project was supposed to be named. So... That's why it was it was uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Nine, um, uh, the Heart of Darkness. But uh, what I later discovered was that we couldn't use that title because we didn't have the right to use Friday the Thirteenth. Oh well. Um, that's why it's Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. Um, that's why the next one is Jason X. Um, New Line. They had bought the rights to the character Jason Voorhees. They had not bought the rights to everything underlying in those rights. So it limited me in, in a number of ways. But that's how, uh, by the time I was 23, I was writing and directing the film. What was it like directing one of the biggest franchises in history at 23? Uh, it was awesome. Look, dude, I was very lucky. But, you know, the, the thing, it's really funny because a lot, you know, a lot of people, you know, their response to it back then was, you know, who the hell is this guy? He's a kid. He's barely been in the business. And that's where they get it wrong because... I was a kid, I was really young, uh, but I'd been in the business since I was 11. And so it was like, well, you know, yes, you know, had I done 20 films at that point? No, but I'd worked on a lot of movies. And, 
you know, when I was in New York City, I worked for a company called R. Greenberg Associates, and I worked on Goodfellas, I worked on Bonfire of the Vanities, I worked on some incredible films. Um, so I had been around quite a bit, and of course I'd been working, you know, around Sean Cunningham for most of my life. So, um, you know, plus you had, I had done over 70, you know, uh, theatrical productions at that point, um, and run two successful businesses by the time I was 23. So, you know, I, I, I was a, I was a kid, but I was a kid who had had a tremendous amount of work experience up to that point. So, you know, it was daunting, but, uh, you know, I, I made a movie that came in under time, under budget by quite a bit. And that's, you know, that's at 23, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, you know, I pulled that off. So yeah, thanks man. Thank you. Yeah. And you actually, so, no, I was looking at, but again, I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky. And you actually turned down a job writing for Twin Peaks at that same time. Is that right? Yeah, um, what had happened was, uh, right out of NYU, the two offers that I got was to work in the writer's room on season two of Twin Peaks and uh, to work for Sean. Those are the two job offers I got. And the reason why it was that limited, because I won Best Picture at NYU for a, um, a comedy that I had made uh, called So You Like This Girl. And uh, it's, it's kind of a crazy little movie because the cast is unbelievable. If you watch um, Reno 911, uh, Officer Dangle, Tom Lennon, was the lead of my film, oh, nice. as was Joe Latruglio, who is the second lead on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So those two guys were the two leads of my student film. Um, so I had this amazing cast. Uh, the movie, well, you know, it swept the awards at NYU. It was nominated for the Student Academy Award. I mean, we, we, uh, we really did well with it. The problem is, is that NYU deemed it not NYU enough. Um, it was uh, it was a comedy. It's not really what NYU does. It was um, in color and very cheerful and funny and bright. And uh, you know NYU likes black and white depressing stuff at that time, <laughs> at the very least. Um, didn't even bring it to LA. Uh, so the only people who got to see it were the people in New York who had who had come to the the screenings at NYU um, and the award ceremony. So. You know, it was, uh, I was offered a couple of, of cool jobs, but, you know, I really wanted to get behind the camera. That was really what I, what my life was about. So I rushed to LA to, uh, to start working for Sean. Excellent. And I actually have a quote, um, in front of me and it's from you and it says, uh, fans are either Adam Marcus raped my childhood or it's my favorite of the franchise. So what's, what's your thoughts on Jason Goes to Hell being the most divisive movie in the franchise? I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I really do. I'm not kidding. Awesome. Look, I mean, uh, you know, I, the thing, the, the, the story that I always bring up about, about Jason Goes to Hell in regards to this. Okay. So the night that Jason Goes to Hell came out, um, August 13th, uh, 1993, uh, there was another film that came out that same night, which was Searching for Bobby Fischer, um, which Steve Zalian wrote and directed. Uh, same guy who wrote Schindler's List, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, it is, it's a masterpiece. Um, ben Kingsley, Joe Montana, Joan Allen. It's an incredible film, right? Beautiful movie. Now, I had seen Jason Goes to Hell so many times by that point, and even in that week, there was the red carpet premiere, there was the director screening, there was all these, you know, moments when, you know, when I, when I, I, I was, uh, when I had to see the film. And I had seen it so many times that I just didn't want to watch the movie again. I had no interest in seeing the film again. So 
I walked into a theater that was playing both my film and Searching for Bobby Fischer. I paid for a ticket for my movie <laughs> so my movie would get my money. <laughs> and then I walked into Searching for Bobby Fischer. Okay? Searching for Bobby Fischer is cinematic gold. It's an incredibly beautiful, articulate, brilliantly acted movie. Um, find somebody who talks about that movie to this day. I, I think I'm the only one. I don't even think Steve Zalian talks about the movie anymore. And I love that film. Most people don't even know it exists. Everyone knows Jason Goes to Hell exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. It really is. And a lot of the reason why people talk about the film, look, you know, look, I love Part 7. I think it's a terrific movie. Um, I think uh, I think so many of the chapters of Friday the 13th are incredible. I love Part 6. Part 6 is easily my favorite of the whole franchise. Um, because I think the sense of humor is great. I think Tom Laughlin did an incredible job of directing that. I just think it's a terrific movie. Um, the acting is great. It's, it's, it's a little bit campy, a little tongue-in-cheek, very violent. The kills are really good. Um, but here's the thing. People talk about Jason Goes to Hell obsessively. And, uh, and i got to tell you, the haters really won't let it go. Um, I, I truly... I truly had interaction with a hater on Twitter just yesterday. Wow. And here's the thing. <laughs> All these years <Yeah>. later. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I got to tell you, here's the incredible thing about it. I don't really get mad at the haters. I really don't. Um, that, that's a waste of time. Um, if somebody doesn't like the movie, they don't like the movie, and I get it. And, and look, it's, it's art, or, or, <laughs> or it's adjacent to art. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's one of those things where, it, you know, people are going to have opinions, they're going to have their feelings about it, and I don't really need to change their opinions. What I find, the only thing I find frustrating about it is that when I talk to somebody who hates the movie, and I mean, the people who hate it, they like, it's venomous, their hatred. And I say, okay, so tell me why you hate it. Uh, I hate it because it sucks. <laughs> okay. Um, cool. Uh, do you think that the... Uh, the kills are good. Do you think they're good kills? Oh, the kills are badass. Yeah, like, like, uh, how about that that kill in the tent? Oh, it's like the best kill of the whole series. Okay. So you like the makeup effects. Oh, K&B rocks. Fucking awesome. The kills are amazing. It's great makeup. Okay, what about the way Jason looks when he's on screen? Oh, it's badass. It's really cool. The flesh growing around his mask, and it's just a fucking bad, you know. Wait, you like Kane Hodder? Kane Hodder's the best Jason there ever was. Oh, Kane Hodder. <laughs> Okay. Um, do you do you think the acting is good? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's good. You like the characters? Yeah, the characters are kind of cool. I mean, look, that that woman in the diner is really funny, and that's pretty great. And uh, you know, a couple of girls are hot. And okay, cool, uh, cool. So, um, so did you like when Jason gets blown up? It was badass. That was fucking awesome. Okay. <laughs> How about when he when he when his mask gets pulled to hell? The best, best ending of Friday Thirteenth ever. Okay. So what you don't like is that you don't see a hockey mask for 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, totally <laughs> fucked up the franchise. <laughs> and, that, and, and, that, and that wasn't even that's your it. call, right? That wasn't even your call. Did Sean Cunningham want you to take the no, mask off, not. right? He sure did. He sure did. He, he loves to play some revisionist history about that. There's a, there's a video on YouTube where he calls me a fucking liar at a convention. Oh, wow. um, of course, I'm not there. I'm not there. So it's a, it's a really classy move on his part. Um, uh, he's sitting next to Kane, and Kane knows the truth of that. Um, and it's interesting because Sean calls me a fucking liar, and then almost immediately he starts to backtrack on the comment. 
because he realizes as he's saying it, it's a lie. It's not true what he did. And look, here's 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 my take on that because because this is kind of an important thing to me at this point. And I've actually been talking at a lot of uh, festivals because my latest film has been a big festival hit. And at every festival, I get this question about you know about the mask in, in Friday the Thirteenth, and you know Sean says you're a fucking liar, and I said okay. And I tell people, take your phones out, post this to YouTube, please be my guest. My response to Sean, Sean's claim of this is, okay, there are only one of two ways that this could go. Either um, I am or was at 22 years old the single most powerful human being ever to to step foot into the film industry because a 22-year-old film school grad told the Sean S. Cunningham, <laughs> who was in his 50s at this point, is about 53 at this point, I told him what he was going to do with the Friday 13th franchise. Yeah, I a... told him what he was going to do. <laughs> and I was so powerful that this man, who really is one of the paragons of, of the horror you know, genre, this man crumbled at my feet and said, anything you want, Adam, my franchise is your franchise. Wow, yeah. <laughs> do with it what you will. <laughs> That's or, funny. or he told me what to do. Yeah, so I'd buy the second. Either, either <laughs> I'm I'm incredibly powerful human being, he's a eunuch, or he's the liar. So only one of those two things can be true. And by the way, if he wants to say that he's a eunuch and that I'm this powerful, amazing individual, great, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> no, that- no problem. But truth be told, you know, I, I love when someone when when I love when someone besmirches another artist, uh, especially when it comes to integrity. Um, and I think Sean should spend a little more time thinking about his own integrity. Yeah. Quite frankly. Do you guys still have a pretty good relationship? Since you guys, uh, you said that you grew um, up with the Cunninghams, right? I did, and I and I, I got to tell you, I really love Sean. He again, he was like a father to me. I, I have to tell you the sadness. Of, of all of it is that once uh, once your relationship is about money or has money involved in it with Sean, um, pretty much you can write it off because it's money is more important um, than uh, than the relationship. Um, that, that's plain and simple. And Sean made a tremendous amount of money off Jason Goes to Hell. He made a tremendous amount of money off of my boyfriend's back. Um, and then uh, he behaved the way that he does when it gets about money, and it got it got ugly and mean spirited. And you know, I was a kid, and I didn't ask for anything. I mean, I really did not ask for anything. Truth is, is that you know, when you hear about what's going on with Victor Miller right now and the right situation with with Friday Thirteenth, um, you know, there's a lot of fans that are like coming out against Miller. You know, he's fucking up the franchise. Like, wait a second, no. No, it's not true. There was no franchise without Victor Miller. Um, Victor Miller created this whole world. And, um, you know, Sean works in a way where he takes, you know, great artists' ideas and he does great things with them. He's an incredible producer. Sean's an amazing producer. Um, the man really understands how to produce a film, how to finance a film. He is extraordinary what he does. But, the problem is, is that he does not have any interest in sharing the wealth and in whether that's about finances or whether that's about credit for the work. And, uh, you know, 
Um, I think he's sort of reaping what he sowed when it comes to Victor Miller, who's, you know, who has uh, got a lot of evidence on his side at this point regarding this whole thing. Yeah, and Jason goes to hell. That was probably the most successful financially, wasn't it? It was very successful. Here's the interesting thing about Jason Goes to Hell. It was insanely uh, successful when it came to home video. That was where it really kind of blew up. um, Because New Line, brilliantly, it's the first movie New Line ever released that had a rated and an unrated cut of the film. Um, and so, uh, which they intentionally wanted me to shoot stuff that the MPAA would cut. They wanted that cut. Uh, mostly because the rest of the world, that's the only cut they ever see. They never see the, the rated cut around the world. They just see, they just see the unrated. Uh, but in the U.S., they were able to sell every mom and pop shop that would normally buy one copy of the movie. They suddenly had to buy two copies of the movie. Oh, wow. So the movie was an incredible success for New Line, um, which was great. And again, here's the other thing. We made the movie for way less than the Paramount Friday the 13th movies had been made for. Um, my entire operating budget, and this includes the rights, was $3 million. Wow. Um, and the rights were well over a half a million dollars for the rights. So, but again... That is, you know, I take some credit for for the work that happened, but the truth is, Sean Cunningham is an amazing producer, and so he knew how to take that two, you know, two point four million dollars, and really give me a chance to make a, a, a film I could be proud of. I, dude, I had thirty seven days to shoot this movie. Man, to this day, I've never had such a healthy schedule. It's, it's just <laughs> a fan, it was a fantastic schedule. It was amazing. Yeah, you know. Is that because the effects work, or why did you have so much time with it? Well, effects and, and stunts. We had we had at least one effect and one stunt working every single day of the shoot. Um, sometimes there were ten effects working one day. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have much choice but to... We, we, we had so much work to do that the movie had to... Uh, it had to be shot that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, when you look at stuff like just The Melting Man, you know, when, when oh, Josh... It's fucking amazing. Oh, out. it holds up so right? well. That's a, that's a huge series of, 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 of effects, you know? Yeah, and it still holds up. I just watched it last week, and, man, I tell you what, that's uh, that's some good effects. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, Bob Kurtzman, um, you know, who I met uh, in pre-producing Jason Goes to Hell, uh, Bob is still one of my best friends, and, in fact, Bob uh, just did all the effects and uh, and also shot B camera on my latest movie on Secret Santa. Oh, Literally nice. just shot for me. Um, and I'm producing a film uh, for Bob right now. And also, um, Bob is doing one of the segments in an anthology film my company is doing. So, yeah, it's uh, no Bob Kurtzman and I are joined at the hip. Always will be. And it, and it's because his work is he's a genius. I mean, the guy is. You know, he's actually a living legend of our business. The guy's done over 400 movies. That's wow. insane. I do want to get your thoughts on Jason Takes Manhattan because that's uh, it takes place right before your movie. So what's your thoughts on Jason yeah. Takes Manhattan? Um, I was told by Sean Cunningham, ignore that movie ever happened. <laughs> I literally was. And I was told you can go from part seven. Um, so I said, okay, cool. Um, so I did. I took it from part seven. The, look, the other thing is, you know, um, the, the limitations on 
on what I could do and what I could use from the franchise were really tough. Um, I could not use any other ancillary characters from oh. the franchise. So originally, the Stephen Freeman character, the hero of the movie, was supposed to be Tommy Jarvis. Oh, nice. And, uh, and in the original treatment, it is Tommy. And the whole point of it was that, you know, I wanted to show Tommy, now that Jason is gone, supposedly, you know, dead forever, um, Tommy's life is sort of rudderless and meaningless. And uh, he gets this girl pregnant, you know, his girlfriend, he gets her pregnant, and she leaves town. He doesn't even know that she's pregnant, doesn't know that she has a baby. Um, I wanted to really make Tommy kind of a fuck-up, and then suddenly this, you know, Jason Voorhees rises again, and he's given purpose and given a chance not just to destroy Jason for once and for all, but also to put his own life back together. Man, that's awesome. And that, for, well, that for me was kind of the arc of the movie. That was what I, that was the story I wanted to tell. Because here's the thing, what I was, what I don't like about the Friday 13th films and, and where Tommy helps, my problem with most of the Friday 13th films is that there's no, there's no heroes that are as interesting as the villain. So Tommy became, you know, became Friday 13th's version of Nancy from, from the Nightmare on Elm Street films. And so I really wanted to, I wanted to make a Tommy Jarvis movie. I was not allowed. Um, Paramount came in and said, absolutely not. You can't use that character. So, uh, so I, you know, I literally had to, I could have Camp Crystal Lake and I could have Jason. And that's about it. Man, that's what I was allowed. They didn't give you too much to work with then, did they? No, they did not. And basically, here's the thing. Whenever I make a movie, everything has to have a logic. It, it can be a cinematic logic. But it's got to make logical sense in the universe of the movie. <clears throat> so for me, I kind of looked at the film and said, okay, I have one big problem with this franchise. This guy has murdered over 100 people in a very short few years of time in a mile radius in this little town. <laughs> And I'm like, guys, that's that's no longer a local law enforcement problem. That's a federal problem. <laughs> yeah. Like the feds are going to be in on that. That's the most prolific serial killer in the history of our country. <laughs> no shit, right? Right. <laughs> so you go, okay. Um, the feds would come in and figure out the fuck's going on, and they would set up a sting operation to get this guy. And that's exactly what they fucking did. The opening of the film was really one of those things that. It just made purely logical sense, you know? Um, and it let us blow up Jason Voorhees, which was, you know, which was the most what-the-fuck moment of the Friday 13th Oh, franchise. fuck yeah. Dude, that happened, I'm telling you, there was not one audience that didn't, like, scream and hoot and holler, and then everybody was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> oh, he's... <laughs> ten minutes into the movie, I just blew up Jason Voorhees. And then there's a line that was improv that I actually wrote on set. I wrote it and handed it to the actor because Creighton Duke was supposed to see this. And I said to Steven, I said, dude, I, 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 we, need a, we need a teaser that gets us into the rest of the movie. I said, just say, I don't think so. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, I love that. And Dean Laurie, who wrote the script with, you know, he wrote the, the, the screenplay with me. He turned and he was like, holy shit, man, that's line of the movie. That's awesome. You know, but it was something that just happened on the day. Um, because I went, the audience is going to go, wait a minute, what movie am I watching now? 
And the minute that Creighton says that, the audience knows, okay, Jason's not really gone. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, they should know that, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, the guy is, has been, you know, roasted, burned, drowned, flambéed, every, every kind of thing you do to this fucking guy, and he's still there. So, <laughs> I don't know why anybody thought he was actually gone, you know. So, so where did the idea come for um, Creighton Duke? Because I actually, I really love this character. I wish we actually spent more time with him, you know, in the movie. So where did the idea come for Creighton Duke? The idea for Creighton Duke came from <clears throat> a couple things. We needed a Von Helsing. We needed somebody who knew all the rules. And uh, especially because we were introducing a new mythology into Friday the 13th. And I, I know that word mythology is the, <clears throat> is the, the place where the people who hate this movie, they go nuts when they hear me say mythology. Like, fuck Adam Marcus and his mythology. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing. I knew there was a new mythology. I also knew, um, and it, it gets to a, to a larger point of, of contention about the film, um, which, I, which makes me giddy, makes me so happy. So when I was a kid, and it goes back to logic, when I was a kid, um, back in, uh, in the early 80s, uh, you know, I grew up in this beautiful little town in Connecticut, Westport, Connecticut, which is where Sean is originally from. Um, and so there were no theaters in my town that were playing the Evil Dead. So my dad lived in New York, and he had a buddy who could get me bootleg movies on VHS. So before you would get them in a, in a you know, they, they would still be in the theater and I'd get a copy. So uh, this buddy of mine got me a copy of the Evil Dead. And I watched it down in the basement of my good friend Dan Lowenstein's house. And it was like 10 of us packed into this room. And it was like a really grainy, horrible VHS copy of the movie. Which, as all, all horror fans know, the worse the copy of the film is, the scarier the movie ends up looking and feeling. You feel like you're, you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. So I fell madly in love with Evil Dead. I just, I just was like, this is not just the movie itself, but the way it was made, that it was this guy and his friends from college yep. that they went and just, they just went and made a fucking movie. And oh, I'm yeah. like, I love that. I adore that. So with that spirit in mind, when I started breaking down how Jason Goes to Hell was going to work, I kept coming back to the question, which I brought up just a little while ago, which is, you know, <laughs> okay, so the logic of Friday 13th, and I, I always love when people go like, you know, the logic of my film is crazy. I'm like, really, is it? Okay. So the logic of Friday 13th is the first movie is about a woman whose child drowned 30 years ago in Camp Crystal Lake. Um, at the end of the movie, that child jumps out of Camp Crystal Lake, and he's still a child. He's still exactly the same as he was back then. He just has some more, you know, dirt and muck on him, right? Mm hmm so this kid jumps up, drags Alice down. A few weeks later, she has grown two feet, <laughs> has figured out how to drive, has found clothes that fit him. He's gotten to Alice's house, and he's brought his mother's head with him. <laughs> he kills Alice, drags her corpse and his mother's head back with him, back to Crystal Lake, okay? By the way, that's only in a couple of couple of weeks that those two events happen. Yeah, two but weeks. But let's go further. <laughs> a, a year later, right? A year later, he's the elephant man. Yep. Living in a shack with a shrine to his mommy. 
Then he gets he, he gets up the hockey masks after being you know cut up and beaten by by Amy Steele's character, which who by the way is badass and awesome. He gets a hockey mask, gets hung, gets just again beaten the shit out of for Friday Thirteenth Part Three and it happens all in three days. In four, Corey Feldman turns this character's head to hamburger meat. I'm not just talking about him sliding down on the machete through his brain. But then Corey Feldman does the thing that everybody wishes every hero in the horror movie would do, which is you don't stop chopping up the bad guy until he has little pieces of meat. Yep. Okay? And that's what Tommy does at the end of that film. So much so that Paramount was left with no choice but then to make a movie about an ambulance driver who has a photograph of Jason in his wallet. I, I, like, I want to know what poor you know, a reporter took that picture and was it his last picture. <laughs> um, he, he makes this incredible mask and cowl. The cowl is what's extraordinary in Friday 13, part five. He makes a cowl, puts a mask on, all set, right? He, he's, now he's Jason. In part six, Tommy digs up Jason's remains. And by the way, it's still not hamburger meat head. It's like a full head. Okay. But it's, <laughs> zombie Jason all of a sudden because he's resurrected by a bolt of lightning? Yeah. In in part seven, he fights Carrie. In part eight, he takes a boat ride to Montreal. <laughs> so, okay. Now, let's say that's what I have to deal with. As a filmmaker, that's the storyline I've been given. Yeah. Well, he's not a human anymore. He's not really a zombie either because he doesn't work by zombie logic so my response is i went okay we have to make this thing much more interesting we have to make this 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 character is a creature now it's a monster we've actually got a monster on our hands and so i start looking for other mythologies that i can tie into this film because prior to the marvel cinematic universe prior to the Universal Studios monster universe, prior to all of these universes that everybody's trying to build, I wanted to attach other horror films to the Friday 13th lore. I wanted it to be fun for me as a fan, because look, think about it this way. You know, how much cooler was Scooby-Doo when we were kids? How much cooler was Scooby-Doo when Batman showed up? It was far more awesome. So I was like, I want to find a way to connect some of these other films to Jason Goes to Hell, and that way to Jason Voorhees. So I said, okay, if his mother would do anything to save him, if Pamela Voorhees would do anything to get her Jason back, wouldn't she make a deal with the devil? Wouldn't she raise up the evil dead using the Necronomicon? Wouldn't she research that book, find the Book of the Dead, and resurrect her Jason? Yeah. I mean... It makes sense. Yeah, sure she would. And now, Jason can have all kinds of magical abilities and powers because he is... Now, again, I know that deadites have a very specific logic. I get it. I'm not saying that he's a deadite. I'm just saying, if she created all of this, if she, if she went through the rituals of this, and she's also not a teenager stumbling in a cabin... She's a smart woman who is determined to bring her Jason back. She just brought something, you know, up through the evil dead that perhaps isn't a deadite, but is some other form of the evil dead. Okay. Um, but 
my my feeling is I wanted to give it a logic why this monster exists and how he keeps coming back time and time again. So when I met Bob Kurtz and the K&B boys, um, uh, Howard Berger and, and Greg Nicotero, uh, I was trying to figure out different, you know, I was trying to kind of put this logic together. And I went to Bob. And by the way, the first time Bob and I hung out on set together was on the set of Army of Darkness. Oh, nice. With Sam. So I said to Bob while I'm there, I said, hey, do you think you could ask Sam if he would lend me the Necronomicon? For That's so fucking out? cool, man. Right. And Bob asked, you know, Bob's like, well, what do you want it for? And I tell him my plan. He's like, dude, that's badass. He said, I'm going to ask him right now. Dude, Sam Raimi puts the Necronomicon into a Ziploc bag and hands it to me. That's awesome, I man. I kid you not. I was like, dude, you are, you are the coolest MF I've ever met. <laughs> and, uh... And that's how the, the thing got in set. Now, um, you know, the, the, what I needed, why Creighton Duke became important was we needed someone who could explain all these rules. Now, I couldn't say the evil dead. I wasn't allowed to um, because New Line didn't own that franchise. But I had to create a mythology that would be something that one person could talk about. And Creighton, who got way cut down in the final cut of the movie, and the final cut of the film was over two hours long. Um, it was, and by the way, it was way too fucking long. It was self-indulgent. It was boring. It was, it was nonsense. So it, it definitely, you know, we, we whittled it down at, it, at first to make it a better film. Then New Line wanted it to be under 90 minutes so it would get one extra screening a day at theaters and make a hell of a lot more money. And I understand the business sense of that. I totally do. Um, there's, there's a film that I think if 13 or 14 extra minutes were added to, it would be an even better film. Um, part of that is Creighton Duke has a relationship with Jason Voorhees since he was a teenager. When he was out on Crystal Lake with his girlfriend, a girl he wanted to marry, and they're out on a rowboat, and Jason capsized the rowboat and dragged his, his girl down to the bottom of Camp Crystal Lake. Oh, wow. Um, and that's when, that's when Creighton vows revenge, and that's when Creighton becomes a bounty hunter for these kind of maniacs. Um, so he knows everything about Jason, and yes, you know, he's the guy who figures out the Evil Dead connection, and he's the guy who gets the Kandarian dagger. Man, that's awesome, and man. so, puts it in Jessica's hand, knowing, you know, Jason can only be put down by the person, by a person in his bloodline that birthed him. So, it, it's, uh, because, his, because if Pamela brought him back, it would have to be her bloodline to bring, to put him down. And so did you get the exact, you didn't get the exact prop of the uh, actual uh, dagger, no, right? No. Okay. No, I did not. No, I, that, that we manufactured. Also, I knew that I wanted the dagger to change when Jessica touched it. So that was kind of, you know, we, we, I was playing, I was, you know, I was putting in some of our own mythology into that mythology. So, um, so yeah, so it's not the actual prop, but the, but the Necronomicon is the actual Necronomicon. So did it, how long did it take for the studios to catch on or or to call you on that? Be like, so I see what you did here with all this Evil Dead stuff. Here's the thing. The studio was so busy with the fact that I was referencing a million movies in this movie. I mean, <laughs> a number of films, the number of other filmmakers. And the other thing is, you know, and it's, and it's one of those things that everybody always asks, like, you know, did the studio make you do this? Absolutely not. Um, when it came to Freddy's Glove, that was my idea. 
Nice. What had happened was, me and my roommates, it was Noel Cunningham, Sean's son, and uh, Dean Laurie, who wrote, who wrote the script with me, the three of us are hanging out in our apartment together, and uh, they were getting pretty drunk and, and pretty high. And uh, I was not, because I don't partake, but I was always always glad to hang out with these guys and make fun of them while they got blotted. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we were trying to come up with cool references we could put in the film. And I said, wait a second. I said, guys, doesn't New Line own Freddy outright? Because I dealt with so many issues, you know, rights issues with Paramount. I'm like, don't they own, don't they own Freddy? And the guys were like, yeah, I, I think so. So I called Mike DeLuca and Mark Ordesky, who were my, who were my two executives. And uh, by the way, that, that right there is kind of a remarkable thing. I had two of the best executives to ever work at New Line Cinema. Mike DeLuca who was, you know, a, another Wunderkind, who was like this, you know, young, hotshot guy who literally ran the studio with, with Bob Jay. And then Mark Ordesky, the guy who made the Lord of the Rings franchise happen. I mean, it's, it's incredible, the two guys that I had working with me. And so I called them up and I told them, hey, you know, I, I, can I get Freddy's glove and his laugh? And they were literally like, what do you want it for? And I told them what my ending was for Jason Goes to Hell. And these guys, they you could hear them high-fiving over the phone. Oh, yeah. Um, they sent me that glove. Truly, I had it on set a few days later. Um, and uh, and it's so funny because when you think, you know, the, the Necronomicon was given to me in a Ziploc by Mark Rodesky. Uh Freddy's glove came in a locked box attached to a guy's arm. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it shows you the difference in the filmmaking style. It's kind yeah. of amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, so I think New Line was so excited by what I was trying to do. They were so giddy. Look, here's the thing. The bonus of hiring a 22-year-old, 23-year-old to make a movie for you. Um, because, you know, I, I, I was and am the youngest writer-director uh, hired by a major studio for, for a feature. Um, the thing that's so cool about it. Because, look, you're taking an enormous risk when you do this. But there is a bonus. I don't know any better. Yeah. So when I want to do something, I would just fucking do it. I would be, like, <laughs> excited and guns blazing and just go for it. And, by the way, I mean, I'm still the same filmmaker. I mean, I, I still don't, you know, uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather ask forgiveness than permission. Um, and it's, and it's exciting when you've got somebody who's so in love with the genre as I am, who's so in love with the Friday 13th films, which I am. And I'm just like, I was like a kid in a candy store. And then I had Bob Kurtzman next to me, who was as big a kid as I am. So truly, I mean, I remember Sean at one point, Bob and I were coming up with deaths, um, and we were laughing and acting stuff out. And Sean Cunningham walks in and goes, it's like two idiots in a sandbox. That's pretty much what's going on here, man. Like, we are children at play. So that's kind of the joy of hiring somebody who just doesn't know any better. You know what? I remember to this day seeing that glove go over Jason's mask. And I remember us just talking about it all night, probably, you know, that entire week. Yep. Like, what? what's going to happen? Are we going to get a Freddy versus Jason movie? Were you ever, um, was there ever talks for you to direct a Freddy versus Jason movie after that? Why did we have to wait um, 10 years? Well, here's what happened. I went in. I went in on Jay, Freddy versus Jason right after Jason goes down. They wanted to do it right away, and I know Dean Laurie pitched something. I pitched a, a take. Um, we we had um, you know we had opportunities to, to go in on it. Here's what happened. I had a three picture deal that New Line was doing with me. 
um, right after Jason goes to hell. And then right after that happened, Ted Turner bought New Line. Oh, wow. And he, and he basically outlawed all horror. All horror was off the books at New Line. He wanted to make it a prestige, prestige house. Uh, which, by the way, was the biggest mistake that ever happened in New Line Cinema. I mean, it's really just knuckleheaded. It was not a place where Warren Beatty should be making housing, you know, uh, uh, what was the name of that? House and Country? No, I can't, I can't remember the name of the damn movie. Um, it was, it was like they wanted to suddenly be United Artists. And I was like, wait a second, this is New Line, the house that Fred built. What are you doing? Yeah, no shit, right? And wow. so, right. So, so they killed all of their horror production. All of it went away. They burned off the, the stock they had already. And they started making prestige movies that all were failing. And so, um, so that was, you know, that was the first problem. The next problem is, think about it. You've, now you've got Bob Shea, Sean Cunningham, Wes Craven, some executives at Paramount, all in the mix on Freddy versus Jason. That is asking some huge filmmaking powers to agree on a lot of shit. Yeah. It, 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 dude, that's why it took a decade. And they made Jason X because they were going to lose the rights if they didn't make a movie. So they had to make a movie. So that's why Jason X had it. So it was simply to keep the franchise from, from slipping out of their fingers. It was pretty nuts, man. It was pretty nuts. The whole, the whole Freddy Jason saga is, is kind of incredible. And for me, I still feel like they ended up with a movie that doesn't have as much love for the for for the franchises as it should have. Yeah, um, I feel like the the movie feels a little corporate, and that's kind of a shame. Exactly, it does, it does. Because like, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people um, like it enough because you get to see Freddy versus Jason on the fucking big screen, you know. But yeah, it is very corporate, yeah. and that is a shame. So yep. where did where did the idea for body hopping Jason come from? Was that your idea? Was that uh, whose idea was that? Because that's where the fans get divided, right? That and the limited hockey mask. Yes. Yep. Yep. Look, here's the thing. When it comes to limited hockey mask, here's what's funny about the hockey mask itself. There's a lot of hockey mask on screen in that movie because of the finale, especially. It is such a long, it's such a prolonged third act, and Jason is in every frame of that third act. So. There's a ton of hockey mask at the beginning of the movie. There's a ton of hockey mask at the end. Um, the frustration for people is that Jason is wearing a different kind of mask for most of the film, which again gets me crazy because I go, okay, there's two remedies. One, you've got five movies with a guy in a hockey mask prior to my film. You also have a film where a guy is wearing a, um, I'm sorry, you have six movies, six hockey mask movies, one that's not even really Jason, but people are okay with that. <laughs> you got a movie where he's the elephant man, for fuck's sake, in, in part two. And in the first movie, he's a little boy. So I'm like, okay, so he still wears the hockey mask in our film, big time. But he wears other people's bodies as a disguise. And for me, uh, the funny thing is the hidden always comes up. Okay, this is true. Stack of Bibles time. I had not seen the movie The Hidden. I hadn't, and it's a, and it's awful because I'm a huge Jack Shoulder fan. I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. Um, when I saw The Hidden, I was like, "Oh shit!" Because people had started to comment to me about it, 
And I was like, damn it, man. And it, I mean, the similarities are shocking. Wow. And I was like, I've never, I've okay, never well, that sucks. <laughs> um, how, however, however, the real place where the body hopping came from was John Carpenter's The Thing, nice. which is, you know, in my top five of all time, not just horror movies, but movies. Yeah, if you're going to pay homage uh, to somebody, I, I, I you pay homage that. to John Carpenter, right? You bet. You bet. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, no, dude, I, I you know, it, it definitely, it definitely spawned out of, out of The Thing because I knew I needed to get rid of the hockey mask. And I also wanted the idea of who the hell is the villain now? And this idea of people trusting the wrong person, I just thought was so fun and, and scary. Um, and I just thought it gave us potential for so many cool things to happen. So that's where it came from. Yeah, and I read that your version of Jason Goes to Hell was a lot darker. It was more centered on Jason's never-mentioned brother. So tell us about that. It was way darker, dude. I mean, it was crazy dark. Um, the opening of the film truly started from the end of Part 7. Uh, so you've got this uh, this figure, this dark figure, paddling out in a rowboat on Crystal Lake. He dives off the back of the boat um, and finds Jason and un- unhooks him from the bottom of Crystal Lake. He brings him up, puts him into the boat. They, they, they travel back to where the cabins are. At Crystal Lake, he's dragging his body into one of the cabins, which he has turned into this like janky makeshift operating theater. He then puts Jason on a slab and he starts to do an autopsy. And this guy's wearing a, 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 a surgical mask so you can't really see much of his face. But you see, what you can see is there's all these boils and pustules and this guy is just fucking hideous. And uh, he's sort of talking as he's doing the procedure and uh, as he's talking, we keep flashing to moments of Jason as a little boy with his mom. And we see Pamela Voorhees adoring her smooth-headed, beautiful Jason, even though this kid is, you know, in his own way, you know, rapid deformed. And then you see this little boy who's very, very smart, who, you know, doesn't have uh, the mental handicaps that, 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 that Jason had, but he's hideous, and he's covered in the skin disorder and the mother treats this kid like a dog, and that's Elias. And that is the person doing surgery. Um, <clears throat> he opens up Jason's chest, and there's the heart. And he pierces the heart with a, with, a, with a scalpel very slightly, and suddenly blood starts to run, this black blood starts to run from the heart, and the heart starts to pump. And this guy grabs the heart to yank it from the chest cavity, but... Jason's eyes, his eye opens, and he sits up, and he grabs his brother's head. So Jason's squeezing his brother's head while his brother is trying to yank Jason's heart out of his chest. That's a great image, isn't it? (laughs) It was crazy, man, and it was like this death battle tug of war, and so you've got blood spattering out of Jason's heart, you've got these pustules popping all over this guy's face while they're both trying to kill each other. And finally, Elias rips the, ch- the heart out of his chest, and Jason's body goes limp and falls. And then Elias consumes his brother's heart to take his power, to take what Jason had physically, because this guy didn't have the physical prowess of Jason. He had all the mental ability. So now the idea was that now you have this hybrid of Jason and his brother, who's brilliant, 
so you've got all the massive power and the genius as well. That's awesome. You know what? It the sounds like a uh, Brian De Palma Friday the Thirteenth film, doesn't it? Uh, by the way, he, by the way, you could not give me a better compliment because Brian De Palma, one of my favorite filmmakers, and in fact, I worked for Brian when I lived in New York. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Brian was one of my biggest film school teachers. I, I don't mean at NYU. I mean he really taught me about movie making in a very serious way. Um, so that you could not give me a better compliment. No, that's sure. what it sounds like. Um, I know you can't. You probably can't do a lot of the stuff because of rights and everything. But have you ever tried to? put a screenplay together or something just for the fans to show them what your ultimate version would be of Jason Goes to Hell. Sure. Dude, it would be freaking awesome and I would love to. The problem is, is that I, 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 am, I work so much. I have so many projects that I'm doing, um, especially with my new production company. Dude, I only wish I had the time. Um, because, look, man, here's the thing. You know, uh, first off, because Friday the 13th is such a mess right now, legally, yeah. um, I feel bad for anybody who's working on stuff in the Friday the 13th uh, you know, area. Look, you know, I think Never Hike Alone is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's I amazing. love that movie. I think it's a great film. Um, I, I really do. And I think what, what Vincent did is, uh, is uh, actually just extraordinary. Um, I, I uh, contributed to the campaign, to the Indiegogo campaign for Voorhees, and I never contribute to those campaigns. Yeah. I don't do it. Um, because I'm, I'm old school. I think you should have to, you know, find your financing in a legitimate way and not, you know, not go begging for money. Um, but I got to tell you, I, I love what his game plan was. I think he's a really smart filmmaker. I was like, I am totally going to support this guy. So, look, I mean, I think those guys are doing great stuff. Here's the problem. There's no way to amortize those movies. You cannot make money on those films. You legally cannot make money on those films. And, you know, we filmmakers put their blood, sweat, and tears into into their movies. And by the way, I'm not saying that everybody has to get rich on every movie. That's crazy, and it's it's not the way it works. But you have to be able to at least make your money back. Exactly. Pay your investors back. And for me, there is something just... You know, I, I, I look, I mean, I don't think there's going to be any more Jason Go. I don't think there's going to be any more Friday the 13th comic books. I don't. I know that the games had to stop making content, um, which sucks because people love those games. Um, and they're badass games. They're fucking awesome. Um, I, I love, however, that, you, that the, in or, in, the only way you can un, uh, unlock the Jason Goes to Hell look in the game is you have to uh, make 666 kills. In order to unlock the look, I do love that. That's probably my favorite little touch in that game. Um, but here's the thing, man. I I, I, I think that um, you know would I love to to explore that character more and the and the, and the mythology of it more? Damn skiffy, I would absolutely any day of the week. You know, they did do that petition a couple of years ago for for me to to recut the film. That I would do. And I told Warner Brothers, I've actually been in contact with them. I told them I would do that for free. Like, I have no problem. Look, by the way, I'm never mercenary about it. It's never about the money for me. It's just about, you know, when you're talking about, like, oh, I wish you could do it as a comic book. I wish I could, too. The problem is nobody who makes comic books is ever going to make that book because you'd have to give it away for free. Yeah. And no one can do that. That's the problem. But when it comes to, you know, recutting Jason Goes to Hell, oh, dude, I'm, I'm all about doing a recut of that movie. And the one thing I would change is the only thing that I wish I could have done back in 93, but there was no way to do it because there was no such thing as digital at that point. We were shooting on film. 
um, and effects were just too too expensive. One of the ideas that I had, and Candy couldn't do it just be, just from a monetary purpose, we couldn't make it happen. I wanted, as people became Jason, as each person took on his persona, I wanted, as the bodies broke down, I wanted to see the mask starting to come through the skin from underneath. Oh, nice. Right. So, like, Robert Campbell, when he goes to the police station, you would start to actually see the mask under his skin pushing through. So his face would be changing as the body was breaking down. So... I wanted there to be more hockey mask in the movie. I just couldn't afford to do it. So, um, so that's one of the things that I would fix, uh, given a chance to go in because I would do some effects work. I would do a little bit of, you know, rose scoping and, and fixing some of that stuff. Um, but no, brother, I mean, See, you know, I that, would love, that I would do for free all day long. Cause what? I would love to read a, a screenplay for Jason Goes to Hell with all the ideas that you told me tonight, you know, with Creighton Duke a little bit more yeah. realized and Elias, yeah. um, all that together. I, yeah. I don't know if you'd have to call it, you know, um, a, a fan film script, you know, because of the rights and everything, but right. uh, it would go a long right. way exactly. with your name on it, you know, even though you sure. wouldn't be able to sell it, sure. it would have to be a passion sure. project. But I, w- I, w- I hope you revisit that sometime because I would love to read what your ultimate version awesome. of, of, you know, uh, of this movie would look like. I think that'd be awesome. That's awesome. No, I dig it. I dig it, dude. That's, a, that's actually a great idea. How much footage did you shoot? Is there enough on the cutting room floor to impact a new cut? Oh, hell yeah. Dude, we, we cut about 38 minutes out of the movie. Okay. So there's a ton of stuff. There's a ton of stuff. Again, a lot of it is garbage and <laughs> needs to go away. Um, but as I said earlier, there's like 13, 14 minutes of it that I would put back into the film that would make it a better movie. Absolutely. And then um, I, I want to go back to a question real quick. It really doesn't make any sense to where we are right now, but I really do like Creighton Duke. And he has this quote, man, that I kid you not, it's probably my favorite quote. It is my favorite quote out of all of the Jason movies. And it's uh, uh, Duke has this great quote about sticking hot dogs through donuts. Where the hell did that even come from? Um, I, I have to give full credit. That line is 100% pure Dean Laurie. Um, Dean, Dean, back in the day, uh, we always used to say he was a healthy mix of George Romero and Walt Disney. Um, <laughs> he just has this incredibly perverse sense of humor. And so when we were talking about Duke, Duke was basically the Quint of our movie. We kept calling him Captain Quint before we called him Duke. Nice. And, um, and that's why he says, I'll get you the mask, the machete, the whole damn thing, which is a direct quote from Jaws. Um, and so for me, um, uh, when Dean, when we were talking about how he would speak and what his, what, you know, what his thought process was, when we were doing the interview scene, Dean literally said, <laughs> I said like, okay, so what he's asked about Jason Voorhees. And of course he's not going to tell the viewing audience what he really wants to do to Jason Voorhees. And Dean said, well, makes me think of a little girl in a pink dress <laughs> sticking a hot dog to a donut. <laughs> that is the best That's line like, ever, man. I looked at him and I was like, that is insane, brother. That's insane. <laughs> Put it in the script. It is so great. But uh, real quick, yeah. man, I want to get your thoughts real quick on retconning. Um, the new Halloween is going to retcon everything after the original film. Um, the new RoboCop is doing the same, and so is Terminator 6. So just what's your thoughts on when retconning? You say, when, you say, when 
you say retconning, explain explain to me your your what you mean by that. Okay, so like Halloween, um, you know how they're doing it is um, everything after part one really doesn't right. matter. It, it's an alternate, you know, reality. It, it doesn't exist. I don't know. It just depends. Like especially with Terminator right. Six, alternate reality. Um, so what's your thoughts on them oh. retconning Friday the Thirteenth? Um, going back to I don't know, Jason Lives. All right, which would affect your movie, you know, sure. quite, quite, you know, quite a bit. But what's your thoughts on just retconning these old series, like, like Look, certain movies I, didn't I think, exist? Um, by the way, I think that's fine. I mean, honestly, my film does that to, to Jason X Manhattan. It does. Um, so I, I think it's fine. Look, here, here's my problem with all of it. Quite frankly, um, with very few exceptions, can someone tell me what the bonus of making of remaking these movies is? Um, very few, very few remakes are satisfying. Uh, most of them are pale imitations of what came before. There are a couple of exceptions, but only a couple. Yeah, the um, thing. Right, the thing is a perfect. But here's okay. Now here's what's great about the thing, and here's why the thing is such a remarkable film. John Carpenter is such a massive John Hawks fan. Was such was so in love with the, with the original thing. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Howard Hawks. Yeah, such a giant Howard Hawks fan that. He remade a movie that he pays homage to in Halloween, in the first movie. He, he has those kids watching the thing because it was a movie that truly informed every decision he made as a filmmaker. The other thing is, the original film of The Thing barely uses the original story who goes there in the plot of the movie. So Carpenter was like, look, I love the Howard Hawks film. But I really love the story that film was based on. I want to make that movie. Now, to me, that's not a remake. That's a guy going back to the source material. For another perfect example, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the thing that's so brilliant about that film is that Philip Kaufman didn't want to remake the original film. Philip Kaufman was living in a period of time when the idea of giving yourself over to a government, the idea of assimilating, um, of losing your identity as a person who fought the man and then becoming the man, that's why that film is relevant. That's why that film is so good. The problem with the remakes of, you know, a lot of these movies, Nightmare on the Street, Friday the 13th, all of these, the problem is, even Texas Chainsaw, and by the way, I think Marcus Nispel's remake of Texas Chainsaw is terrific. I think it's a really well-done film. I think it's mean-spirited. I think it's gory. I think it's got a great cast. Here's the problem. They're all very corporate. Yeah. It's not a filmmaker going, I have been dying to remake Friday the 13th. Yeah. Okay? That's not what filmmakers say. It's not. Um, the, the, the reason to remake the thing is, as I described it, it's Carpenter's obsession with the original story. Um, the reason David Cronenberg remade The Fly, this is actually incredible, was that when he was a kid in his town in Canada, they showed The Fly to local movie theater, the original film, and they had a contest. Anyone who could tell, tell the theater manager why the science of the movie The Fly doesn't work would win a year's worth of free passes to the movie theater. And David Cronenberg went to him and said, um, you're displacing too many cells. You would have a tiny fly head on a human body and a giant and a man's head on a fly body. <laughs> you don't 
how do the cells change to become a giant fly head? That's impossible. Cells don't work that way. And the theater manager threw a, I think, 10-year-old David Cronenberg out of the movie theater. Oh, wow. Okay? And David Cronenberg, at that age, said, I'm going to remake that movie and make it make sense. Yeah. Okay? That's a reason. That's a filmmaker reason to remake something. When we watch things... Like, look, I mean, even Marcus Nispel's remake of, of, of Texas Chainsaw, which I think he cared about tremendously, and I think that's why it's a good film. But let's be honest. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you got a van full of kids that, let's be honest, that is the, that is the most unfortunate-looking group of, of teenagers ever assembled in a van. <laughs> that is a motley group of, of kids, okay? You cut, and by the way, what's great about those kids looking that way is that when you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it felt like it was real. It felt like a documentary. It yes, felt like it those did. were your friends. You watch the new one and you go, everybody in this car is a fucking model. It's like an Abby and Krabby and yeah. catalog blew up. Bright white teeth. Yeah, right. exactly. And, while, and by the way, while they are all terrific actors, there's not a bad actor in that film. The work is really good. But you go, yeah, but they all look... Like, they're the most beautiful, collected group of people ever assembled. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. No, it doesn't. When it comes to, you know, when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street, when it comes to Friday the 13th, here's the thing. If you can find a way to improve upon what was done, great. Go for it. If you can't improve it, why are you touching it? Yeah. Why? And most of the time, it's for the money. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, most of the time, it's just for the money. And that's... Right, and John Carpenter didn't remake the thing for the money. Exactly, he remade the thing because he had to remake that movie. Yep. You know, I I work I work with the Soska sisters. Um, I don't know if you know the Soskas, but um, they're amazing filmmakers. They made American Mary. They're they're just badass. They're the, the coolest ladies ever. And right now they are remaking David Cronenberg's Rabbit. I can tell you, these women have been talking to me about this film for four years. Damn. And they are so excited and so in love with making this film that I go, you're the right people to make this movie. Dude, uh, look, I'm not against I'm not against all remakes. And look, you know, I, I feel bad for somebody like Rob Zombie when he remade Halloween. I think it was a passion project. Maybe it's something he really wanted to do. The problem is that Rob's point of view on that story, it cheapens the story, not not because Rob's not a great filmmaker. He is a really good filmmaker. The problem is, is that suddenly you've got this trailer park version oh, yeah. of evil. Yep. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's you know, uh, The Devil's Rejects, which got, like, is just one of the greatest horror movies in the last 20 years. Incredible film. Yeah, I I hate seeing how the boogeyman become the boogeyman. You know what I'm saying? And that's what Halloween does. He's like, he's he's out in the backyard killing animals and and, and jerking off in a closet. And, you know, that's that's not interesting to me, you know? Well, because it's, because, by the way, it's just Jeffrey Dahmer. It's just all the other serial killers. The greatness of, the greatness of of what Carpenter did was that he took a sweet, faithful little boy who had never done a bad thing in his life and and said, this kid was born evil. He had great parents, he had a lovely sister, he had a nice life, and he was simply born evil. That's terrifying, because exactly. then anyone could be that evil. Exactly. So, yeah, so no, I look... Again, do I think that it's cool that they just made a you know a, a, a Halloween that 
<laughs> is about Laurie Strode, you know, now, yep, I think that's cool. Do I think it's awesome that Nick Castle is back in the, in the math? Fuck yeah, I think that's great. Um, I will say this. I think the whole world is on fire for this movie. I think the expectations are too high. And I think the movie is going to have trouble jumping over those expectations. And I feel bad for everybody involved because I'm telling you that they are setting the bar so high. John Carpenter didn't write this movie. John Carpenter didn't direct this movie. John Carpenter is doing the music and exec producing. Yeah. And I love Carpenter. Again, one of my top favorite filmmakers. I think he's brilliant. I think he, I, it, it kills me every year that he does not make a movie. Oh, I know, but, right? You know, people, people savage Halloween 3. Well, guess what? Halloween 3, John Carpenter did the music for it and the exact producer. Yep. So it's like, you know, guys, give the movie a break. Like, let it just be what it's going to be, and let's see how it turns out. If it's awesome, great. Great. It's going to be interesting, too, because this year we have Halloween, and then next year we get Terminator 6. You have an older Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, taking on the boogeyman. Then you have an older Linda Hamilton you know, taking on the Terminator. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, things in common with these two films. Well, and by the way, look, here's the one thing about, about as you call it, retconning um, uh, Terminator. The thing about the Terminator is because the timeline is malleable, because it's about time travel, Exactly. you can change that timeline any which way you want. Yeah, yeah. If you liked Terminator Salvation, it's not going to really bother you because you can just say it's an alternate reality it's it's you know it's within time it's and an you alternate can, timeline exactly and that yeah. makes it okay yeah yep so that makes sense that makes sense again i don't know who likes the last couple terminator movies yeah right but, <laughs> i don't but, i want to make but, that clear <laughs> but, yeah I, me too um but, but i but i think that at least at least that franchise has a way around that problem yeah and, and since we're bullshitting right now, um, if you could direct another Friday the 13th sure. movie, okay? Um, 2019, uh-huh. you can do anything you want with the franchise. Blank check, what would you do? Right. Um, I personally, at this point, look, I, I think, um, I mean, it's a, it's a tough franchise now because you do have Freddy vs. Jason, which, which for me kind of mucks up the works to some degree. Um, I actually think Never Hike Alone went closer in style to what I would do with that film. Um, here's what I would do, honestly. Um, I would make, uh, I would make a Friday the 13th movie that was basically The Predator. Hmm, interesting. I would, asse- I would assemble Creighton Duke oh. and a group of guys... Because Creighton did not die at the end of my movie. Man, dude, I'm, um, I don't mean to cut you off, but man, you don't know how bad I want that movie. I want Creighton Duke in a two-hour movie with his guys. Uh, Creighton Duke right there, front and center, hunting down fucking Jason Voorhees yep. in the woods. That is a fucking movie, man. Yep. That's the movie. That's the movie I would make. I would make. I would make Friday the Thirteenth as. I would make Predator. Um, so you you have the baddest motherfuckers in the world. Um, all going in to get this guy once and for all. That's uh, awesome. And he's just hunting them down. I would pay to watch that movie in the theater. And that actually segues nicely into my next question. You just completed a new movie through your company, Skeleton Crew Productions. Um, it's very inspired by Roger Corman values. Um, I really like the idea behind Skeleton Crew. Uh, can you talk about that for a little bit? Thank you, brother. Um, look, here, here's, here's, here was the inspiration for it. When I first started in the business... Roger 
Corman was one of the first places that was interested in some of my material and in giving me a chance to direct. It, he is, in fact, the person that forced Sean Cunningham's hand in getting my boyfriend's back made uh, the way it ended up getting made. Um, and what I loved about Corman and what I love about that style of filmmaking is that it was never about money. It was about how creative can you be given this much money? And whatever that is, this is what you get. Um, it was it was the wild, wild west. And that's what I love about it. I love that Corman was about finding great talent, great filmmakers, and then giving them the opportunity to do the kind of work that they were able to do, but they had to do it on a limited scale. And that's where the and that's where the, the good thing. work comes though, right? That's where the uh, that's where the great you movies bet. come from, like oh, Jaws. You know, having limited budget okay. and having to, to, to work around things. Think, think about this. You know, the fact that Joe Dante, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, all of these people came out of Roger Corman. All of them. And it's because they got to work on films that didn't mean the end of their career if it didn't work. That's the other part. When yeah, people make true. a movie now, there's so many millions of dollars on the line yep. that if you fuck it up, you're done. Yeah, Go you're home. done. It's over. Because who's going to hire you again? Who's going to put all those millions of dollars in your hand? Yeah. But if you have you know, an ultra-low-budget movie and you have enough funds to make the film, but you have to be smarter. Here's the thing. Money does not solve film problems. It doesn't. It makes certain things easier, absolutely. It makes everybody a little more comfortable, sure. But it doesn't solve storytelling issues. And the problem that I find is that the cheapest thing in the world, which is putting a, piece, a, pen, a pencil to a piece of paper and fixing a script, that's the thing that nobody ever wants to do. Yeah. Nobody wants to spend the real time it takes to actually write something the way it needs to be written. The number of films that go into production today that don't have finished scripts, that's crazy. But again, that's a very corporate style of filmmaking, and I understand it. I do. When these studios have release dates, they are backing a product into a release date. It makes sense. I do understand it. But for me, it was this idea of letting people have just enough money to make what they can make giving them some ownership over that product, giving them some ownership over what they're actually making so that then really does, then they got skin in the game. And more importantly, the number of people I know, incredibly talented people out there who are brilliant writers who have never been allowed to direct. My composer is a large prop sculptor in the business who's done everything from Guardians of the Galaxy 2 to Fate of the Furious. He's working on the Disney Jungle Cruise right now. I mean, these are people who make huge movies, but this guy is a is a genius composer, and it's never given the, given the chance to compose. Wow, isn't that crazy? Um, it's it's these kind. It's letting artists do the thing that they dreamed of their whole life. Um, my buddy John Esposito is my best friend in the world. This guy John Espo. John wrote Stephen King's Graveyard Shift when he was in his twenties. And he then produced From Dust Till Dawn for Tarantino and Rodriguez. Uh, he did rewrites on that script. He won the Writers Guild Award two years in a row for The Walking Dead. I mean, this guy is, he's the shit. He has wanted to direct for 30 years. No one has let him. I'm letting him. That's awesome. I'm going to let him get behind the camera because he's brilliant. And here's the thing. There, you can't lose. Yeah. <laughs> the budgets that we're doing, you cannot lose. That's awesome. You can only win. 
So it's allowing people the chance to, you know, to, to really make their dream projects. What I did to, to start the company was myself, my, my, my brilliant wife and partner, Deborah, um, we wrote a project that my producing partner, Brian Sexton, who was hands down the best producer I've ever worked with, the three of us crafted this movie. Uh, uh, we wrote the script in 21 days. We shot the film in 11 nights. And it is the movie I am absolutely most proud of of anything I've done. The movie has been all over the world. The festivals, dude, it's been crazy. We were at Sitges. We were at Glasgow Fright Fest. We just won uh, Silicon Beach in, in L.A. We just won Best Picture. Um, we uh, were going back to London Fright Fest in a couple weeks. We're going to be at Horror Hound, as we, you and I talked about before, in Indianapolis. Dude, this thing has been everywhere, and people are freaking out about it. The reviews have been incredible. Um, and it's, dude, it is a tiny, tiny... By the way, I shot it for way less than what I would give any other filmmaker to make their movie. And that's Secret Santa, because right? I wanted to prove... Yes, that yeah. is Secret Santa, and I wanted to prove it could be done. I wanted to prove this is what I can do. And part of that, and part of what Skeleton Crew is based on, is that I've been teaching acting in L.A. for over 20 years now. And I grew up in the theater, as I said earlier, you know, my whole family is in, in the theater and, and actors in, in film and television. And so I grew up in the theater. I have such a love of actors, and I've got a troop of 65, 68 actors that are people that I work with every single week um, who are brilliant actors. And there are, people, there are a lot of people you would know the minute you saw them. They're like, oh, I watch a guy in television all the time. And here's the thing. I have such a shorthand with these actors, and when I bring directors into the, into the group, I go, look, <laughs> there's your cast. Pick them. And I got people from, you know, I've got an 11-year-old girl all the way to people who are almost 80. I've actually got one 93-year-old in my group. I'm not kidding you. So I've got this incredible range of actors, and I go, great. These are the people that will kill for you. They will do whatever you need them to do on screen. They, these are the these are the people that are going to make your film. And it's this amazing thing where these actors who all get to do lots of TV work, they do all that stuff, but they never get to play the leads of movies. There, there's so many actors that you know they spend their whole lives playing. You know, the guy's got three scenes on a CSI episode, and suddenly these actors who have trained their whole lives to do what they do, suddenly they get a chance to be the lead of a movie. Dude, they swing for the fucking cent. Oh, I bet. So, it's this—it's just this incredibly supportive, warm family of a group um, that just keeps supporting young filmmakers and some old filmmakers' dreams. One, you know, like one of the things in our in our in our company, one of our uh, mandates is there has to be someone over sixty in a key position. That could be the DP, that could be the director, that could be the writer, but there has to be one person over sixty at all times in in that core group on each film. Um, there have to be people of color. There have to be equal number of women behind the camera and in front of the camera. Um, I mean we're doing we're doing something that is about filmmaking equality, but also about great storytelling. And look dude, you know, in horror, man, we're horror is, you know, it's the place where we push the envelope. So, brother, we, we need to be making movies like this oh, yeah. because if not us, who? Yeah, and with Skeleton yeah. Crew, we I think one. you you have uh, the uh, the potential to make the next Evil Dead by doing things the way that you're doing you it, bet. you know? You bet. Dude, we're, do we're working on a film right now that I'm so freaking psyched about. 
um, that uh, two producers who are actresses, two actresses that, that I met out in L.A., uh, these two actresses, um, Sarah Cheney and Heather Hawk, they brought us this project written by another actress, a woman named Lindsay Hollister. Um, have you ever seen uh, the Get Smart, the movie, the, the Steve Carell version of Get yeah, Smart? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So remember when he has to have that tango battle opposite um, uh, Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway is this, like, you know, this fancy duke who ends up being like the villain of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's Steve been a Carell while. has to do the tango with this, with this very large woman, right? This very large woman he has to do this tango with. Uh, that's the woman who wrote this movie. And so, so you've got these three young female filmmakers, right, who brought us this project because it was exactly in our wheelhouse called Fat Camp Massacre. Dude, it does, for people who are overweight, what Get Out did for the African American. Oh, sweet, community. man. That's cool. It is the coolest. I am so freaking psyched about this movie. Um, and, brother, I'm telling you, like, this is... This is the kind of stuff that that Skeleton Crew wants to do. And look, we're doing a ton of horror. We do some. We have some action stuff. That, you know, mostly genre fair um, thrillers. We're, we're doing thrillers, but most of it's you know, especially in our low budget division, most of it's horror. And um, but the thing is, is that I want to make the kind of horror movies that Carpenter and that George Romero. Made. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to make movies that have some social commentary, that have something to say, um, as well as scare your pants off. So that's kind of where Skull and Crew is. And, and again, you know, all birthed in Roger Corman's honor. That's awesome. I have one more question yeah. for you here before we before Please. we close out. Um, so how much, how much would it cost to make a Jason movie? Could you make one on a low enough budget without calling it Jason, not using the hockey mask, just a slasher in the woods? How much sure. would that cost you? Uh, Dude, you can make it for, you can make that for almost nothing. Again, you know, uh, we were talking about Never Hike Alone. I mean, that movie was made on Peanuts. And I'm telling you, dude, that movie, that movie's a terrific film. Like, with Skeleton Crew, could you make a slasher in the woods and, and make the same movie that you described to me earlier with, you know, uh, a slasher with an evil brother and you have a, a Creighton Duke-type character, your Predator movie, right? Hunting down right. this, this yep. slasher in the woods... Uh, and just not call it, um, you know, Jason or Friday the Thirteenth, but putting your name you on, could. putting yeah. your name on it, it is the movie that we never got, you know. And uh, I th sure. that'd be fucking sure badass, that. man. Have you ever thought about making your Jason movie without the title character? We'll see. Look, I can tell you this: um, no matter what, I am going to make a uh, a movie that with a character very much like Creighton Duke. Played by the man who played Creighton Duke. Oh, that's so awesome. I am doing that movie. That is something I'm, I have in development right now. That's fucking awesome. Um, I can't wait to see that. that I really believe in. That's awesome, what? man. Well, Adam, oh, yeah. thank you very much for your time. Is there anything I haven't brought up that you want our listeners to know about? No, brother. Honestly, look, what I, what I would say, and it's, I, I think this is super important um, uh, regarding our genre, you know, look, I think um, the fans, uh, of, of horror, the ones that are really hardcore horror fanatics. Um, you guys are the only ones that can actually um, help filmmakers, not just like myself, but young filmmakers and film, the kind of filmmakers that we're looking for in building crew. You're the ones who can support this kind of work and keep it happening. And the only way it's going to happen is if, is if the fans uh, rejoice and get excited about this stuff. And, you know, one of the things that's always problematic, and, you know, it's one of the things that I dealt with on Jason Goes to Hell, you know, the fans always want 
something different. Everybody's always begging for new and different. We don't want the same old, same old. And then someone makes something different, and the initial response is, well, that sucks. It's not just like that other thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I got to say, you know, look, and I know there are people who, like, hate The Babadook. The Babadook is a fantastic movie. The Witch is a fantastic movie. There are great films out there that might not be on your first impression your cup of tea, and I get it. I do get it. Look, I don't like the movie It Follows. I don't like that movie. Yeah, I actually, movie. I don't either. I think it's highly overrated. Great, but here's the deal. I love that it got made, and I mm -hmm. love that it exists, and I love that genre fans love it. I love that, even though I don't like the film. I love that we're at a time when people can tell these kinds of stories in independent filmmaking. And I got to tell you, you know, look, you know, I, I would I would beg every person that's out there that listens to your show, I would beseech them, please, find Secret Santa, um, whether it's at a festival right now or playing at a convention or doing that kind of thing, and then rent it when it comes out and go see it in the theater when it's playing in a theater near you. And support these tiny movies because then we can keep making them. The only way we can keep making this kind of material is if the, is if the hardcore horror fans seek it out and pay for it. Don't, don't steal it. Don't hijack it on the internet. Actually go and pay your money to see this movie. Even if it's just a couple bucks, if it's on Shutter, Jesus, Shutter's four bucks a month. To exactly. Shutter, you know, but it's the kind of thing that allows filmmakers like myself to make material. And that, that's on the fans. If they want us to keep making stuff, they got to pay to see it and support the artists that are desperately trying to fill yeah. their nightmares with cool shit. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Support horror, support the genre that we love. Absolutely. And hopefully someone will create that next Friday the 13th or that next Evil Dead movie. Um, go search out independent horror, movies like Secret Santa, and go support Skeleton Crew. It sounds like you guys are really doing something special. Thank you very much for taking the time. Where can Videoland find you, Adam? You can find me uh, on Facebook at Adam Marcus. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Marcus13 uh, and also at Skeleton Crew Pro. You can also find me on Instagram at Skeleton Crew Pro. And uh, you can look up SecretSantaTheMovie.com, which is where you can see everything about Secret Santa. Uh, that's our website for the film. Um, and uh, it'll be at a theater near you soon. And once again, you will be at Tor Hounds in August, right? You bet. You bet. I'll be there um, on uh, Friday, August 24th. Um, I am going to be, they're going to be screening uh, Jason Goes to Hell and Secret Santa in a double feature. And uh, myself and Kane Hodder will be there to introduce Jason Goes to Hell and do a Q&A afterwards. That's awesome. To uh, all of our listeners, you can find us at adventuresinvideoland.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, but the conversation always begins and ends on Facebook. So until next time, my good people, peace out.